I've been preaching the past few weeks about some shared, uh, some passions. I've, I've shared four passions that God stirred in me while I was on sabbatical. And, and there's been a part of me that's kind of wanted to just, let's just go back and do them over and over and over. Those passions that I have preached about, we started with the cross. And then I preached about my passion for the Word of God and my passion for preaching and singing, how, how you can't separate preaching and singing. And, and last week I preached on my passion for prayer. And all of these passions operate as we gather as the church. And here we are, we're gathered, and we've been, we've been doing those things. These passions uniquely come together as the body of Christ comes together to worship. There's a fifth passion, and, and, and this passion begins to encompass all four of them. And so this is the fifth in the series that we've called Passion for the Body of Christ, but this is also the first of the next series. So this is the end and the beginning. This, fath, this fifth passion in, is my passion for the body of Christ. This is, this is the body of Christ. Here we are, individual believers gathered purposely, passionately to glorify God and magnify the incredible beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We call this church. Look around. I only see a couple people doing what I'm asking them to do. No. Look, look around. This, you are looking at the body of Christ. And you're looking at the church. So there's a metaphor that's being used. Now, I, I want to start. I want to talk about metaphors. There's three principal metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the church. The bride, the vineyard, and the flock. Those are the principal ones that are linked to the Old Testament. We're going to talk about the fourth one, but, but I want to start with an understanding so it helps us to see some things that are important in these metaphors. The Old Testament uses these three metaphors in particular to describe God's relationship with Israel. Here's some examples. We see Israel as God's bride. You see that in Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 31, and all through the book of Hosea, among other places. The metaphor of the vineyard, you find that in the Old Testament. Psalms 80, um, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 17. God calls us His flock. It's found in that that well-known psalm, Psalm 23, Jeremiah 50, Isaiah 40. So you see those, those metaphors. Those three metaphors are also found in the New Testament. So that you, there's an Old Testament thing that's followed metaphorically into the New Testament. You find the metaphor of the bride in Mark chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 5, Revelation 19, we're referred to as the vine or the vineyard, Mark 15, um, or John 15, Mark 12, we are, we are Christ's flock and He is our shepherd, John 21, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, 2 through 3. 
So we see these metaphors being used to describe God's relationship with his people. These are all very heavily relationship-based, aren't they? For example, Jesus says he's the bridegroom and we are the bride. And we also read at the end of Revelation that we're going to be at this marriage supper. There's a lot of intimacy. There's a lot of relationship there. Bride, bridegroom? John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. So the church are the branches. He's the vine. We're dependent on the vine. There's got to be a relationship there. If you separate the branch from the vine, the vine dies. I know enough about agriculture to know that that happens. In John 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. So we see this relationship aspect of these metaphors. And Jesus applies these metaphors to the church. The fourth metaphor that we're going to be looking at is also relational, very relational. And that metaphor is the body of Christ. And it's unique. It does not have a, a, a tie back to the Old Testament. The body of Christ metaphor is New Testament. It doesn't have an Old Testament equivalent. We are the body of Christ. If you look at one another right now and you look at each other and you go, you're the body of Christ, you could do that. And you're speaking truth. You are the body of Christ. Now, don't anybody go, you're the big toe. Man, did you see that that guy in the back? Man, he's the earlobe. We are the body of Christ. It's very important to understand this metaphor. We also call this gathering the church, right? So I can say, look at each other and say, you're the church. We could do that. This building is not the church. We, we do that. But this physical building is not the church. You are the church. I'm the church. We are the church. The church is also not just simply an organization. Many times we get distracted as the church because we think of it in terms of organization, club, or business. One of the worst things that can happen in in a church setting is if we only look at it from a standpoint of business, then I become the CEO and I don't want to go there, and neither do you. That's not who we are. Let's think of it in a different way because there's several places that as we begin to function as the church that fellowship is stressed. And it's so good to be doing this on this Sunday when we have come to communion. And here's why. Because one of the things that you find in the activities of the church, the body of Christ, is fellowship. That word fellowship comes from the Greek koinonia. And it means literally Communion. And it means a fellowship, specifically a fellowship of one body. So there's this unifying thing that's that's happening. 
We all come together for communion. What are we doing? We're all celebrating exactly the same thing, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. So the body of Christ, it's a fellowship, a koinonia. The church, we call it that. I mean, it's fine if you want to call this church. That's fine. Keep in mind that as you study the body of Christ and church, the two terms are synonyms. Church and the body of Christ, they're the same thing. And the real definition of the body of Christ is all the people who are truly saved. So the bigger truth about the body of Christ is everyone who is saved. And we can add theologically all who have ever been saved and all those who will be saved. Truly saved. Now, saying that, when you go through the New Testament in particular, you've got to understand church in two ways. It's not like there's two meanings, but let's explain that. So, first of all, the first way we understand is, is what I was just, deli- uh, just described. Church is all believers of all times, all places, and all ethnic groups. All people who have ever put their trust in Jesus Christ and are truly saved, those are believers who are joined together through this Christ in exactly the same way, through the sacrificial blood of the Son of God. Nobody in here came to Christ in a different way. We're all guilty. We're all sinners. We all need the blood of Jesus in exactly the same way. And when we accept our position and the work of Christ and we are saved, then as believers we are placed into the church. And there is in this definition of church only one body and only one leader. The head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. Boom, we're there, right? So across the world right now, Wherever it's Sunday today, because there's some places where it's already not Sunday. But how many people are doing exactly the same thing? That's the church. Sometimes that's called the universal church. Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him. The universal church. All believers of all times. Second, there's another way we need to understand church. And you see this in the New Testament. Because it teaches that the church is also defined as an individual gathering of believers in diverse locations. It's like a subset of the universal church. That's what we're doing here. This is the body of Christ, the church, in this location. At this time, we are taught in the New Testament that each of these individual gatherings have structure. There are leaders and many different people serving for the health and growth of the group, which glorifies God. These gatherings are typically called the local church. And in any one place, there are maybe several local churches. In our community, we have several local churches. However, each local church is a subset of the universal church. Do you see how that works? 
So the, the, there's the two things. Keep in mind as well, each and every local church has one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get together and we say, who's going to make the decision? we got to talk to the boss. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. He's the head of the church. Don't call me the head of the church. I'm not. Paul uses both meanings in his writings. And he, he does this in such a way that as we study this out, we see the overlap. Okay, Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things, the church, which is the body, the fullness of him. We, we've seen that, okay? That's the invisible universal church. Then in 1 Corinthians 12.27, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And because that's written to the Corinthians, the context shows us that he's talking about the local church, a specific local church. Paul also writes that every believer is in, that is in Christ, every believer in Christ is in the church, placed into the church by Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. He says, all were baptized into one body. Now let's... Take a break there because this confuses some people very often. Paul is not speaking here of water baptism. Now, water baptism is what we did last week. You, brother, man, praise God. Water baptism is an outward physical ordinance that believers submit to, which is performed by other believers in obedience to Christ. Did you get that? So that's water baptism. We also need to remember that water baptism has absolutely nothing to do with conversion. You don't get saved by being baptized. What is, baptize, what is baptism then? It's a testimony. I'm going to pick on him again just because he's tall. No. Love you, brother. He got baptized last week. He got baptized publicly as a testimony to the church and anyone else in that park, anyone else, that he has been converted, that he belongs to Jesus Christ. That's water baptism. What Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is spirit baptism. It's the work of God. And that baptism in that verse is synonymous with salvation. We need to make these distinctions and you need to be careful when you read the word because words carry some different meanings based on context. Baptizo, that's where we get the word baptism. It literally means to immerse. End of story. It means to immerse. Well, you can be immersed in a lot of different things. I fell once on the farm and I was immersed in mud. You could say I was baptized in mud. I won't tell you about the pigs because I was, anyway. <laughs> right? Okay. It's used a variety of different ways in the New Testament as well. 
One of those places is Romans 6, 3 through 5, where we find that believers are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. And believers are also immersed spiritually into the body of Christ. That's the point in this, this verse that we're looking at this morning. You are baptized into the body of Christ. That means you are immersed into the body of Christ. Very important concept. It's not... So let me back up because there's, here's some more of the confusion. We very often hear the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit. You, some of you have probably heard that. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's not a correct translation of any passage in Scripture. It's not the Holy Spirit's baptism. It's Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit. What are we immersed into? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that gives us new life and places us into the body when we trust in Christ. Do you see the difference? We are baptized with the Spirit. We are immersed in Him, and we are immersed into the church. There is only one Spirit baptism, the baptism of Christ with the Spirit that all believers receive when they're born again. The Son of God immerses all believers into the realm of the Spirit, into a new environment, a new atmosphere, a new relationship with others, and a new union with Christ. And where this should take us is to understand that it is not possible to be a Christian. You can't call yourself a Christian and not be baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit. You don't come to Christ and then at some other point get the Spirit. You either are or you aren't. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you say you're a Christian, then the Spirit of God lives in you, abides in you. You've been immersed into a spiritual life. And you receive this, you receive the Holy Spirit the moment you are regenerated. The moment you are saved, the Holy Spirit enters and abides in you and you are placed in the body. And by the word, the, the word abide, it means like to move in permanently. That's how it was used. That's, it, the Spirit comes and boom, it, that's it. I'm, I'm setting up shop here. You aren't getting rid of me. I'm living here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are immersed into the body of Christ. There's no other way to get into the body of Christ except to be baptized into the body, and that is to be redeemed by Jesus Christ. When you became saved, redeemed by Christ, you became a part of the body. Every one of you, if you're saved. Only one way. One spirit. One savior. One salvation. So this is where we start seeing this thing that we, we, we like to hear. Unity in the body of Christ. This is the foundation of it. The church is all about unity. Unity. 
It's all about the body and all those other metaphors. They all point to this same thing. So what does that mean? Well, it means some things like this. I'm not above you, and you're not above somebody else, and you're not below somebody else. We are one. Now, okay, some of you are above me. Okay. We can go there. Why do I do what I do? Is it because I'm the boss? No, I'm just, I'm just doing the gift that God's given me. Y'all need, y'all need to be doing, that's from the South, y'all need to be doing what God has told you to do and given gifts for you to do. There's no hierarchy. You don't find a hierarchy in the New Testament. There are varying gifts, and those gifts are played out in different ways. We all come to the body the same way. We're all, if you want to use trophies. Okay, trophies of whom? We're trophies of God's grace. There's no hierarchy. There's no one who's a better, better saved than another. There isn't a, a hierarchy of a better Christian or a worse Christian. Either are or you aren't. We're all one. Now, I began this morning with the metaphors of, of the church. Think again about those metaphors and how they emphasize unity. One wife with one husband? Let's use that language. We're one flock with how many shepherds? One. We're, we're one branch on the vine. One, one, one vine. One body with one head. Who's the head? The Lord Jesus Christ. We are one. Now, this, this idea of unity. I want you to listen to this, this verse out of Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 4. Count the number of times Paul uses the word one. Okay? There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one uh, baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's his point? I just saw somebody who counted, there's seven, right? Thank you, Flint. One. The church is all about unity. The church is an assembly of redeemed people who owe their distinct existence and life together to the fact that by one spirit they were put into the body and indwelt by the same spirit, we are one. I don't have a different spirit in me than you do. We're all saved the same way. I've heard it many times. We're all the same at the cross. Now, the passion, the reason this drives me to a place where i got to say it's passion is because I love it in the role that God has given me with the giftings he's given me to, to watch when I see individual believers that are consumed, consumed, a group of believers, consumed with the same desires, the same goals and purposes. And over all of those goals and purposes is to glorify God. Let's get together and glorify God. Let's go, this, go do this and glorify God. 
And these individuals with vast diversity, created by God, are serving for the same thing, glorifying God. We're doing the same thing. No, we're doing different things. For the same purpose. What's the purpose? To glorify God. There's some other purposes in the church, and that's part of why I get excited. Because as the church comes together and starts doing the things that the body should be doing, we help one another grow up in Christ so we can do more of those things that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I get the most excited about church, the body of Christ, when the body is functioning as a body. As Paul says, he says in in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's the common good? The common good... That's, that's the unity of the body of Christ. That common good is the unity of the body of Christ glorifying God. This is also Paul's idea in two other really wonderful passages. Um, the first one is in Romans 12. He says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Same idea, almost exactly the same words even. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. What would you do if, you, if your right hand... How many of you are right-handed in here? That should be the majority. Okay. What would you do if your right hand mutinied and decided to just do its own thing and go off by itself? You'd become left-handed. We can think through that metaphor very carefully. The body works when it works together. When it doesn't work together, we usually find those people, when the body's not working together, in a hospital. And we pray for healing. Is that not true? Are we the body of Christ? Okay. Then this is my prayer. My prayer for FBC is our practice of oneness. How does that look? Well, here's some ideas. I, I need to hurt when you hurt. You know, we've got a brother hurting back here. I think it's your niece, right? It's your daughter. Okay, I was confused. I'm easily confused. Stepdaughter, okay. Are we hurting with him? Why do we hurt with him? Why do we grieve? Because he's part of our body. When I hurt, you hurt. And when you hurt, I hurt. 
And when I need to be sensitive to your needs, you need to also be sensitive to my needs. I need to love you when you need love, and you need to love me when I need love. And I need to exhort you when you need exhortation. And you need to exhort me when I need it. The body works together. You and I need to function together. So this is, this is a passion. I love it when I see the body of Christ doing this. But there's a dark side. And the dark side, the dark side is, is when, when I see a believer that's not in that mainstream, doesn't danger and doesn't want to be a part of the body. It's not involved in the life of the body. There's nowhere in Scripture, anywhere, that you're going to find anything that even remotely hints at that kind of individual, I've got this all by myself. It's not there. We're a body. We function together. That's what glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ. When a believer is not in the mainstream of the body, the body is crippled and far less effective. And what you see is when, when there's parts of the body that are not participating, the, the body's limping along, it's crippled. It, it's trying to compensate. A little bit ago I said, what would you do if you were right-hand mutinating? And I said, well... I become left-handed. We compensate. Well, which would be better for the right hand to stay attached, to get with it and do what needs to be done? That's what God intends. You and I need to be in the mainstream of the life of the body of Christ. This is where, this is where eternal life is really at. We're in a body. And this is what Jesus wanted. This is what he wants now. And he wanted it so much that he prays about it. And if you stop and think about, you know, if you go back to the passion I had about prayer, and, and I said, you know, if you want to learn about prayer, go see the prayers of Jesus. So here he is, the second person in the Trinity, the Son of God, and he's praying to his Father. Listen to what he's praying about. I'll interrupt a little bit, but here, here it is. It's John 17. We'll begin in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, so what he's saying there is, I'm not just praying for the disciples, but I'm going to pray for all of those who come to Christ through their ministry. So all of those believers in the future. So he's praying this for us. You see that? Verse 21, that they, here's what he's praying, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So think that through. He's saying, I want all of those that follow me to be one, just like I am one in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is one. One God, three persons in perfect unity, that's what he wants for us. That's what he's praying. 
Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. Unity then draws the world to Jesus. This is one of the things that the world looks and goes, wow, I could be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. How can I be a part of that? And we go, well, you need to know that you're a sinner and you need Jesus Christ. And you need to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection. And they go, oh, I can do that. Okay, then you, boom, you're a part of the body of Christ. You're one with us. That doesn't happen if we're arguing and fighting and stirring stuff up. Jesus goes on. He's not done with his prayer. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me. Boy, you could rest there for a while. What kind of glory has the Father given to the Son? I have no words for that. I have given to them. Let that sink in. Why? That they may be. He's given us his glory so that we, the body of Christ, would be one. He put his glory in us. Y'all want to, you know, it's, it's like you're all going to go out there and you're going to glow in the dark. We all have the same spirit. And that's our contact for the oneness. Let's go on. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. How much love does the Father have for the Son? It's perfect love. It's never ending love. It's perfection. That they may know that you sent me and love them in that same perfect way. Why are we to be one? So that he is glorified. So that his kingdom looks so absolutely amazing that the people in the world are astonished. When FBC is really one, serving and working as one, we will release the incredible power that is wrapped up in the body of Christ. How much power is represented here in this local part of the body of Christ? Look around, man. We've got so much talent, so much ability, so many people that God has said, you're mine because I love you and my glory is in you. What can we do? And you can fill in the blank. When we're one, we are unstoppable because we're one in Christ. It's not about us. It's about him. This idea of being in the body of Christ is where we're going to go in the next few weeks because I want to dig deeply into this passion. And... And the main reason is, well, yeah, it's my passion. It's one of those things I just, I just get so excited about. I hardly have words. I want to see this part of the universal church, what we call FBC, so consumed with this same passion that we are obviously, to this community, one, to his glory.
that he just, he's just busting to help us do whatever he wants us to do. Let's be one in Christ. Father, thank you that you did the work on the cross through your son and that we belong to you. I thank you, Jesus, that you paid for our sins on the cross and, and you, you bought our redemption and all of those things about salvation that we, we know and we love, but you also placed us in the body of Christ. I ask, Father God, that you'd help us, that you'd show us what that means and that you'd motivate us by the spirit that dwells equally in each one of us where we fit into this, how we're to, to function, and how we're to care for one another. Father, we love you. And more than anything, we want you to be glorified. Oh God, be glorified in this part of your body. In Christ's name, amen.